give your attention now to the reading of this portion of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Second Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin with the very first verse, reading down to verse 11. Uh, the sermon text is verses 3 through 11, uh, but I think it's good to begin where Peter began. Hear now this word from God. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we rejoice that you have given us your holy word. We are thankful that we know that everything that's in it is absolutely true. And we ask, Father, that you would abundantly bless the proclamation of your word here this morning. We desire to hear the voice of our Savior through the proclamation of this word. And Father, we, we recognize that just as true worship is supernatural, so true preaching is also supernatural. Preaching takes place, true tr preaching takes place when the Spirit works within the preacher as he is preaching. But there's also that supernatural element of the Spirit working in those who hear that proclamation. And Father, we pray that the ministry of the Spirit would be evident. Lord, may it be that no one would leave this place unchanged by the proclamation of your word. We ask, Father, for you to work within us as a means of glorifying yourself. And, Father, we ask that you would cause us to realize how much we need 
to know our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The recurring theme of 2 Peter is the knowledge of Christ. That concept, that thought, that phrase occurs five times in this three-chapter book. Peter begins with the need for the knowledge of Christ in verses 1 down through verse 11 of this book. Next, he gives the knowledge, the sources of the knowledge of Christ in chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Then in chapter 2, he presents the danger of apostasy from the knowledge of Christ. And then finally, in the last chapter, Peter presents an application of the knowledge of Christ. The book closes with these words. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter's intent was to encourage these believers to live godly lives. We see that in chapter 3, verses 11 and 14. But he also wanted to encourage them to remain steadfast in the faith. We find that in chapter 3 and verse 17. The easiest way to see Peter's purpose is actually to begin at the end of the book and work forward. The readers were in danger of wavering in their faith, as I mentioned, that's in chapter 3 and verse 17, but they are also in danger of living ungodly lives, chapter 3, verses 11 and 14. Why? Were they in danger of wavering in the faith and no longer living godly lives? It was because of doubt regarding the second coming. You may recall that in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, we read, And everyone who has this hope in him, that's Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you have the hope of the second coming? That should encourage you to live a godly life. Now, the reason why they had these doubts about the second coming is because of these false teachers that are described in chapter 2. These false teachers are described as being ungodly, and they also denied the second coming. The answer to the heresies, the false teaching of these false teachers was the knowledge of Christ. Still is, actually. Thus, Peter begins chapter 1 with the answer and works toward the problems. This is very significant. He starts with the answer and works toward the problems. Why is that so significant? Because if you begin with the answer, which is the knowledge of Christ, 
Is that not the answer, or at least a major part of the answer to all of your spiritual problems? You have a problem spiritually. Start with knowing Christ better. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, Christ, through his servant, presents his provision for your growth in grace. That's in verses 3 and 4. And then his plan for your growth in grace, which is in verses 5 through 7. And then finally, his purposes for your growth in grace, verses 8 through 11. Now, this text... And the command at the end of the book show that the knowledge of Christ is connected to your spiritual growth. Again, the book ends with these words, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look again at what Peter writes about the provision of your spiritual growth, starting with verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. First point. Christ's provision has come to you through his divine power. It's rather interesting that in the very first verse where we read, um, to those who have obtained light, precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, there's a grammatical rule that shows that Peter is identifying our God and our Savior here to be one and the same. We believe in the Trinity. And I'm glad we do because that's what the Bible teaches. One of the things I would caution you about is that you don't give people the impression that we're tri-theists. I warn my students about that. It's so easy for people to look at us and think, you're, you're a tri-theist. You believe in three gods. We don't. We believe in one God and three persons. It's one of the reasons why the Jews don't like Christians. It's one of the reasons why Muslims do not like Christians. Because they think we're tri-theists when we're actually hold to one God. But the point here is, it is Christ's divine power that has granted to you this provision for your spiritual growth. And this provision consists of all things pertaining to life and godliness. Notice how the text goes on. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I take that all to mean that that provision is not only comprehensive, it's exhaustive. Everything that you need to advance in your Christian growth, everything that you need to become more and more like the Lord Jesus has been granted to you. It's not a question of whether or not 
It's available to you. The question is, are you appropriating it? Are you taking hold of it, and are you then using it? Now, keep in mind, remember, one of the things that Peter is dealing with these people about is their tendency to live ungodly because of these false teachers. So he's pointing them to that first great need of them living godly. Also, notice that this provision is a gracious bestowal. He, ha he has here that he has given to us. The verb here that's translated given is a word that is used for overwhelming generosity. It refers to a gracious bestowal. It's not something that we deserve, but it's something that's ours because of Christ. Now, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul describes these blessings as the unsearchable riches of Christ. And understand that these blessings, this provision, has been purchased for you by the blood of your Savior. Let that sink in. Everything that he has presented here. We're going to see some of the things that Christ would have us to understand about this provision in the next section. All this purchase by Christ. But notice that his provision is appropriated by knowing Christ. Listen to these words again. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and here it is, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. When he talks about the knowledge of Christ, talks about the knowledge of him who called us, he is not talking about an intellectual understanding of who Christ is. We do understand that the scripture has much to tell us factually about our Savior. But we need to understand that we need a personal relationship with Christ. We need to grow in our knowledge of him if we are going to grow in grace. That is Peter's point here. What did Jesus say in John 17, 3? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's our Savior's definition of eternal life, knowing God the Father and knowing himself. This provision means that you have no excuse for living ungodly. Notice he goes on and he explains that this provision is the result of Christ calling you. He says, who called you by glory and virtue. The authorized version has to glory and virtue, and that's true. We have been called to glory and virtue. Uh, the ESV has a very similar translation, but I am absolutely convinced that the New King James, which I'm preaching from, has it correct. He called us by his own glory and virtue. 
What does that mean? It means that Christ didn't call you to himself primarily because of what you were. He called you to himself because of who he is. The glory refers to his natural attributes. That would be such attributes as his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. He is everywhere. He is all-powerful, and he is all-knowing. Virtue here refers to our Savior's moral attributes. That's his love, his mercy, his holiness, his righteousness. As I said, Christ did not save you primarily because of what you were, but because of who he is, because of his character, because of his nature. But also notice that as a part of his calling, we understand that his glory and virtue has given you promises by which you were made partakers of the divine nature. Notice how verse 4 begins. By which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. The word there in the Greek that's translated which, it actually is plural. It's literally which things. He's pointing back to that glory and virtue. See, the repetition of the preposition through in verses 3 and 4, shows the connections. You see, all things are given to you through the knowledge of Christ who called you. He called you by glory and virtue. Through his glory and virtue, you became, you were given exceedingly great and precious promises. And through these promises, you were made a partaker of the divine nature, and as a result, you have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. These promises that he's referring to. First of all, we understand that the promises of God come to us through our Savior. Second Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 reads, For all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes, and in him, Christ. Amen to the glory of God through us. But what are these promises? Well, there's so many, can't touch on them all, but understand these promises refer to your salvation. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, and then also in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25, we read of the promise of eternal life. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, we read of the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 26, verses 6 through 8, we read of the promise of the resurrection, which is our final partaking of the divine nature. I was watching uh, TV one day, uh, he tuned into Ken Copeland's program. I don't normally do that. I don't even know if he's still on the air. The guest preacher was Creflo Dollar. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, I see some people nodding their head. If you haven't heard of him, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. But Creflo took Ken 
to Philippians chapter 2 and said that Christ did not consider robbery to be equal with God. And therefore, since Christ is our example, we need to affirm our own deity. Now, much to Ken Copeland's credit, uh, he was taken back by that and tried to get Creflo to go back on that. He wouldn't. He didn't do it. You and I have become partakers of the divine nature. But that does not mean that we are little gods. Partaking of the divine nature no more makes you a god than eating bread makes you a loaf. We are partakers of the divine nature. We've been transformed by the power of God. But notice, we come to the end and he says, escape the corruption, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's the result of our regeneration. That is the result of our being partakers of the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 20, you will find that the false teachers it didn't characterize them at all. They didn't. They had only temporarily escaped the pollution of sin. But remember, one of the things that Peter is dealing with in this epistle is the tendency for his readers to live ungodly lives. And so this is why he points them to the very source, the very provision that they need to be able to live godly lives. And then we come now to verses 5 through 8, and here we see Christ's plan. We've seen his provision for your spiritual growth or your growth in grace. Now we see Christ's plan for your growth in grace. I want you to understand that verses 3 and 4 give the motivation for what follows, actually all the way to the end of the section, but particularly in verses 5 through 8. Listen to these words again. But also for this very reason, when he says for this very, very reason, he's pointing back to verses 3 and 4. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, <coughs> and to brotherly kindness love. So I want you to understand the implication of verses 3 and 4 in connection to this next section. You are to understand that you are to diligently pursue your spiritual growth. Notice what he says here. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. Giving all diligence. 
You see, the idea here is you are to match the abundance of Christ's provision for you with your diligence to grow spiritually, to grow in grace. Here, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are joined together. There's a little bit of confusion about what exactly is sanctification, how we should understand it. I would point you, first of all, to the shorter catechism. But one of the things that we need to understand is we can't sanctify ourselves. We can't do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson has got a great illustration for this. Those wind-driven ships, what drives them forward? It's the wind. Is it not? It's the wind that drives them forward. The ship doesn't propel itself. But one of the things that Sinclair Ferguson points out is, yes, the wind is what pushes the ship forward, but somebody has to hoist the sails. Somebody has to hoist the sails. We make good use of the means of grace. That's like lifting those sails, hoisting those sails, so that the Holy Spirit can drive us forward in our sanctification. Now, the next thing to understand is that you are to add one item of your spiritual growth to another. It's interesting, the, the word here that's translated add, it's a little bit of a weak translation. The idea is actually lavishly supply. Lavishly supply. Notice that the list here starts with faith. But faith isn't to stand alone, is it? No. What must be added to our confidence in Christ? Virtue. That's moral excellence. That's what the word means. But how do we know what is morally excellent and what is not? That requires knowledge. That's why the next item is that we're to add to our virtue knowledge. But once we know right from wrong, once we know right from wrong, what do we need? You see, once you know you've been doing something wrong, once you realize there's things you should be doing that you're not doing, you realize now that you must add to your knowledge self-control. The idea here is mastery over oneself, being self-disciplined. And it's important to realize that this same word is listed among the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so we have here self-control, but how long will your self-control last? How long are you going to be able to bear under a particular temptation? Well, that's going to be determined by adding to your self-control perseverance. Perseverance. That's the ability to endure difficult circumstances. And I think that in the context especially since Peter is primarily addressing their tendency toward ungodly living, that this would be bearing under, persevering under temptation 
But what's going to add strength to your perseverance? Godliness. You see, this is, refers to reverence for God, but also the resulting godly conduct. Sometimes the word in one context clearly refers to reverence for God. Other times it clearly refers to um, godly living. But in this context, it seems it has to be both. Reverence for God and the resulting godly living. I like the way John Lilly put it in his commentary. Let the thought of God, a religious sense, holy reverence, and a childlike trust in him be the life and strength of patience. That's what he had in his uh, translation. Godliness, reverence for God. Now, those of you who are old enough to drive, uh, have you ever looked in your rearview mirror and seen a car with uh, a rack of blue lights on top of it? Has that ever happened to any of you? Driving down the road? What's your impulse when you realize that some law enforcement officer is following you in your car? Is it to slam down on the accelerator and try to get out of there as quick as you can? No. I would bet that every one of us, if we saw that a police officer was following us, that we would take our foot off the gas, look down at the speedometer, and hope we weren't going over the speed limit. Am I right? And if you're driving down the road, and you make a right-hand turn, and you notice that the police officer also has made a right-hand turn, and you're thinking, oh. and then you make a left-hand turn, and you realize that the police officer also has made a left-hand turn, and he's still right behind you. My question is this. How will you drive while a police officer is, is, is behind you? With a great deal of care. Now, some of you have already realized the point that I'm, I'm about to make. There's somebody that knows everything we do, knows everything we think, everything we say. We should be more concerned about God watching how we live than a police officer following us when we're out on a drive. We understand that one of the ways in which we demonstrate reverence for God is by our love for one another. If you go to Matthew chapter 25, this is where the Lord Jesus gives that illustration where the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He says to the sheep, you did this for me, you did this for me, you did this for me. And the sheep say, when did we do that for you, Lord? What was his reply? Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. What does he say to the goats? You didn't do this. You didn't do this for me. You didn't do this for me. Well, when did we not do those things? And his response is, inasmuch as you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. Do you remember on the road to Damascus, when the Lord met the apostle, now he wasn't the apostle then, but met Saul, at that time the arch enemy of the church, what was his words to Saul? He said, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? That's what Paul's doing. 
Now he said, why are you persecuting me? One of the ways in which we demonstrate our love for God, our reverence for God, is in the way we treat one another. So there's this matter of brotherly kindness that comes next. But we're to go beyond brotherly kindness, brotherly love, to love in general. I believe Paul here is, this is the same word that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So we move from love for our brethren to love for all men. That would mean Christians and non-Christians. Also, this is mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. Peter next moves on to Christ's purposes for your spiritual growth, verses 10 and 11. Let me just read these, these two verses very quickly and then make a few comments. He says, Therefore, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. <laughs> for if you do these things, you will never stumble. And so an entrance will be supplied yeah, shall be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice, actually, I should have started back at verse 9, sorry. Listen to verses nine and fo- 8 and following. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your Savior has given this provision by his own divine power. And he has also explained his plan for your spiritual growth, adding one item upon another. (coughs) He intends through all this, through your spiritual growth, by your growing even in the knowledge of him, is that you would not be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of himself. Christ does not want you to be useless and fruitless. And what's really interesting here is Paul, Peter has brought us back to where he started. Follow my line of reasoning here. See if you can track with this. Through the knowledge of Christ... You appropriate all things pertaining to life and godliness. And if you continually add these things to your life, you will grow in your knowledge of him. In other words, the more you know him, the more you grow in grace. Let me say that again. The more you become like him, and the more you become, the more you, I'll get it. In other words, see, I'm not the only one that makes mistakes once in a while. Someone once said, if you don't make a mistake once in a while, it means you aren't doing anything. Well, I must be really busy. In other words, let me, I'll I'll get this. Okay, you are to appropriate all things pertaining to life and godliness, and if you continually add these things to your life, you will grow in your knowledge of Christ. In other words, the more you know Christ, the more you become like him. 
And the more you become like him, the more you grow in grace. Are you following the point here? You know Christ better. What happens? You grow in grace. As you grow in grace, what happens? You grow further in your knowledge of Christ. As you grow further in your knowledge of Christ, you then also grow further in your spiritual growth. Now, we can see that he intends for you to have a clear vision. Notice he goes on in verse, um, well, see, this is what's so interesting. I've got to hit this, verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these things are in you, if they are abounding, what will be the result? An increase in the knowledge of Christ. And what will that result in? An increase in your growth in grace. But then he goes on, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Christ desires for you to have a clear vision. The idea here is, well, the Greek literally reads, is blind, being short-sighted. So the phrase being short-sighted is explaining what that blindness involves. And the short-sightedness means that you tend to only look at the things of this life rather than looking beyond the things of this life to the invisible, eternal, and glorious things of God in Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse, excuse me, chapter 14, I'll get it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. We do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Apartment for Peggy. The main, the main Peggy is played by Jean Crane. Her husband is William Holden. And he's a student at the university, and they are struggling financially. And there's a scene in that movie where Peggy walks up to her husband, tells him to close one of his eyes, and holds a half, half, half dollar in front of the other eye. She asks her husband, what do you see? He says, my half dollar. Then she backs up. She backs up. And then she asks the question, what do you see now? And he says, my same half dollar. He says, no. And she's holding, and she's pointing to things that are beyond that half dollar. See, he was so focused on it, he... That's what he only thing he saw. But her point that she made to her husband was this. Don't hold your money so close you can't see anything else. Don't hold the things of your life so close that you cannot look beyond those things. That is what he's talking about. We shouldn't be short-sighted. We need to be long-sighted. That's the word. And also, he adds, and has forgotten. It's literally, 
and forgetting that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's how the New American Standard takes it. They do an excellent job. He says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Having forgotten means because of having forgotten his purification from his former sins, that is why he is short-sighted. Christ doesn't want you to be useless and fruitless. You see, if you become useless and fruitless in the knowledge of Christ, you will have forgotten what he did for you by redeeming you. I'm often struck by the instructions that Paul gives us, which I'll be reading here shortly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Once in connection with the bread, once in connection with the cup, the Lord said, do this in remembrance of me. That's one of the things that we are told to do when we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup is to do it remembering the Lord Jesus. Next, we see that Christ intends for you to make your calling and election sure. Notice verse 9 now. Excuse me, 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Notice those words, be even more diligent. You know, we're not supposed to drift through our Christian life. Twice here in this text, we are told to be diligent. Are you just drifting in your Christian life? Or are you diligently, by the grace of God, Adding one Christian item, one spiritual item to your growth in grace upon another. And are you being diligent to make your call and election sure? This is actually what Peter is driving to in this text. This matter of making your call and your election sure. And he says we're to do it with even more diligence than the kind of diligence he's just described, starting back in verse 5. In a video series, R.C. Sproul teaches that there's four classes of people. There are those who are not saved and know it. These are people, they're, they're just unbelievers. The reason why they know they're not saved is because they don't believe they need to be saved. The next group are those who are saved, and they know it. Hopefully that's everyone here. The next group, the third group, are those who are saved, but they're not sure that they're saved. And the last group are those who are not saved, but think that they are. And it's clear that Peter is primarily addressing those last two groups. Those who are saved, but they're not sure, 
or those who are not saved, but they believe that they are. And then we can see that Christ intends for you to gain an abundant entrance into the into Christ's eternal kingdom. There it is, verse 11. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's suppose that there's a man who was convicted for writing bad checks. And after he got out of prison, no one would hire him. He was an ex-con now. So he ends up living the life of a bum. But one day, a very wealthy man, feeling sorry for this other man, deposits a million dollars into a checking account for the man and has a checkbook delivered for that man. And the man who delivered that checkbook explains that a wealthy patron has put a million dollars in a checking account for you. Here's your checkbook. Well, of course, the man at first is totally shocked. Again, this is all hypothetical, so to speak. The man's thrilled, but he starts to think, wait a minute. Uh, this might be somebody's idea of a very cruel joke. After all, I didn't make a lot of enemies writing all those bad checks. So he decides not to write any check and continues to live the life of a bum, even though he is actually a millionaire. Are you so different? You have available to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. But are you living like a bum? Because you are not appropriating these things through the knowledge of Christ. Through knowing Christ. It begins with knowing Christ. Again, at the close of the epistle, Peter wrote this. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through the knowledge of Christ that you can fully appropriate, take hold of, and make use of Christ's provision for your spiritual growth. May the Lord, by his grace, enable you to grow in grace as you grow in your knowledge of him. As you study the scriptures, let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us a thirst to know Christ better. We ask, dear Lord, that you would, through that knowledge, enable us by your grace to take hold of all that he has provided for us, even by his own divine nature. Father, may we be a people who are not useless and fruitless. But Lord, may we be truly a people who are productive and fruitful. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.